Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're in the month of Elul, and I'd like to just uh, give a few teachings about that, and then uh, more about just the nature of prayer. And one approach that the Gomorrah talks about in terms of prayer, which was, uh, which is kind of a, a new way of approaching uh, one's kind of relationship with God and one's own circumstances. And so it was new to me, and, and I want to share it with you. So let's just begin with Elul. Um, Elul is, is a month of building. We're building toward uh, Rosh Hashanah. And it has a lot of very interesting qualities. Um, every month, there are 12 months in the year, and each month has a tribe which is associated with the, with the month. And the month of Elul, the tribe that's associated with it is the tribe of Gad, uh, Gimel Dalit. That's how you spell Gad. And that was one of the uh, children of Leah. And it, it actually means good mazel. And the reason is because the context of the giving of the name is that when Leah had this son, she felt as though her mazel had changed and that she was now um, going to become perhaps the most favored wife and, and that it just was just a, a changing of her circumstances in general for the good. Um, and so, so Gad is associated with, with Elul. And, and so the first question is, why, why Gad and Elul? Um, the, the changing of one's mazel or good mazel, whatever it is, is welcome 12 months a year. And, and certainly, certainly there are other months that you might think that if, if you had to guess that it might go with. Maybe you'd think like Purim, because Purim is a whole turnabout, a whole reversal. Maybe Adar would have been a good one. Or maybe you could say uh, Nisan, because Nisan is the month of miracles. You know, we go from slaves to free people. That's a big reversal. Maybe Nisan is a, is a good one. So why, why then is Elul associated with, with Gad? So that's, that's the first question. And um, Rabbi uh, Tzvi Reisman, in his book, uh, The Wisdom in the Hebrew Months, uh, from Art Scroll, which is uh, a new-ish book, and very fine in terms of... Uh, in terms of going over a, a lot of uh, wonderful ideas, um, suggests the following reason. He brings, he brings uh, this teaching, just a very important teaching just in general, which is that God created tshuva. Tshuva means really to return to God. Sometimes it's, it's unfortunately translated as, as repent, which I think is a very... Um, negative word, but that's, a, that's an English word, and it has nothing to do with Torah. Uh, tshuva is, means to return. So to me, anyway, the idea of returning to God is a, is a beautiful idea. And, and uh, so, so, so tshuva was created before the world was created. God created tshuva before he created the world. And so tshuva actually has, because it's created before the world was created, it's not subject to the laws of the world, the natural order of the world. In other words, tshuva has a supernatural quality to it, which can affect things in a very amazing way by virtue of the fact that it was created before the world. So it doesn't have, it doesn't have those type of limitations. Now, I was looking at this word mazel, and this is my thought, but if you, if you look at it, the gematria of the word mazel, it's mem, zayin, lamid, it adds up to 77. So, so um, 
We want to be above mazel. In other words, mazel represents the natural order. So when we say that the Jewish people are not subject to mazel, that means that we go beyond the natural order. And of course, this idea of tapping into tshuva is beyond the natural order. So this, this number, 77, 7, is the world was created in seven days. So it's just striking to me that you see this double repetition of this number of natural order. Because when say, if someone says, oh, I have good mazel, I have bad mazel, that's the idea is that it's built into the world. So it's interesting that it's 7-7, seven, seven, you know what I mean? Which is like a double statement of the world, you know? So you want to get to that place beyond. So again, the question is, why Elul and Mazel? And the answer that Rabbi Reisman brings, which I think is a very beautiful answer, is that Elul is the month right before Rosh Hashanah, right before the heavenly sort of um, decree comes down of what kind of year we're going to have. God is giving us this extra opportunity to, to focus on, on essentially recreating everything and going beyond the natural order, and really opening up the gates of changing one's mazel. And, and the gateway to do that more than any other, more than tefillah, more than tzedakah, is actually tshuva. And tshuva means really to, again, to return to God. But what does that mean, exactly? It means that one is doing things differently. And then, if you think about it, if I'm doing things differently than I did before, then by definition, I'm not the same person that I was before. So whatever was decreed upon that other person is not me, because that other person was someone who was doing, living their life this way. But I'm living my life this way. So it's, it's, it's different. So there's, a, there's actually a this-world logic to something which has a supernatural component to it. Um, now, I just want to develop this thought a little bit further. Um, there's a, an amazing teaching, which is always uh, on my mind this time of year. I heard it from Rabbi Wolfson, who um, I understand brings it from the Imre Noam, the, uh, the, uh, the grandson of the Robshitzer Rebbe, he was the Jikover Rebbe. And he brings that the gematria of Rosh Hashanah is the same, 861, is the same as the words Beis HaMikdash. So what is this connection between Rosh Hashanah and Beis HaMikdash? So there are really a lot of connections, actually. I'm going to maybe suggest a new one in a moment. Um, but, But maybe the most straightforward uh, connection, especially right now, because we're just beginning Parsha's key um, Savom. It says in this week's Parsha, it will be when you enter into the land that Hashem your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you should take the first of every fruit of the ground that you bring in from your land that Hashem your God gives you, and you should put it in a basket, and you should go to the place that Hashem your God will choose to make his name rest there. That always means the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, where God chooses to rest his name. That's um, the way the Torah refers to the, to the Beis HaMikdash. So isn't it interesting that right now, as we're heading toward 
Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah is the gematria of the Beis Hamikdash. God is saying, take a basket and put all of your fruit in it and bring it to Rosh Hashanah. In other words, in other words, take all of your deeds, take all of your your the, the wonderful things that you've done this year. Know what you've done right. Put it in a basket. Bring it to Rosh Hashanah, right? Because Beis Hamikdash and Rosh Hashanah is the same gematria. So that's one that's one connection. But I want to get into another connection, more specific to Elul right now, which is, again, this, this month of, of Tshuva. And um, by the way, a very important teaching about Tshuva comes, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rav Kook. You see, people think if you, you know, if you go up to a lot of people, and I'm saying if you have a conversation in a, in, a, in a nice way, in a beautiful way, not where you're trying to hit them over the head with anything or, or be obnoxious or try to sound superior or something like this, but just two hearts talking to each other. And, and, and they begin to understand what, what the Torah is saying and, and, and asking from us in terms of our actions and what's, what God wants from us, what God dreams for us. A lot of people react and they say, you know something, I don't want to be someone else. I want to be me. So you're trying to make me into something else, or the Torah is trying to make me into something else. And yet Rav Kook says that really this is, this is you. And that what is this concept of tshuva? You are returning to the truest aspect of yourself. And, and that's a very powerful idea, because... It's sort of like, I'm not, the whole point is, I'm not becoming someone else. I, I am becoming me. That's the point. And you say, well, then why does it feel strange? Why does it feel unfamiliar? Because, you know, you, you don't recognize your own self. You know? Imagine if, uh, you know, someone were, like, lost in a desert or a forest for years. And then finally they got saved and they looked in a mirror. Would, would they recognize themselves? You look bedraggled, long scraggly beard, or who knows what. Would, would, would you even recognize yourself? You know, it says that when God created the world, he made a contract with the, with the Yamsuf, with the, with the Red Sea, to split when the, when the Jews got there. And we know when the Jews got there, the sea didn't split until the very last moment, then it split. And the rabbis teach that the Red Sea said that it didn't recognize the Jews. After all those generations of slavery, it, it, they didn't look like what the Red Sea imagined they, it would see when, when the Jews came. So it's, it's true for ourselves also. So, you know, I'll tell you something. I, you know, to what extent I'm spiritual, I don't know exactly, but... I always imagined that I would be like one of those type of people that when I wanted to get married, that I would be able to look at the person and go, ah, there she is. That I would be one of those people who would know when they saw their soulmate and recognize them on the spot. And I absolutely didn't. <laughs> you know, I, I did not. I, I did not. It took me a while. Uh, having already met the person, it took me a while. So, you know... We sometimes have very uh, mistaken expectations of of what 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 you know of who we are and what we are, and we shouldn't hold ourselves uh, hostage 
to, to those limitations and to allow ourselves to become what we were created to be. And so that's really the mission of our whole lives. That's the mission of the whole world, of all of creation. See, it's very important that you understand what the Jewish vision for a person's life is and for the entire history of the world. It isn't God created something perfect. Now, please, don't mess it up. That, that isn't it. That isn't it. It's we're created with flaws. The world, remember, Rabbi Shlomo, I heard it with my own ears. He said, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? It's a very important point. The, the Garden of Eden was not a place of perfection, and then we blew it. There was an elevation that needed to happen there. We needed to not listen to the snake. That was, the ball was in our court, and then that was our job. We individually, that's the world, we individually are created with flaws. And these flaws have to be elevated, sublimated. In other words, we aren't created perfect or as finished products. And so, so the idea that there's, there's work to do, every person has work to do on themselves, that's normal. That, that, that's, that's actually the, the that's, that's, that's not plan B, that's plan A, actually. So, so the idea of tshuva, of this idea of return, of this idea becoming more of myself, is, is, is part of the natural order of the world. This is what's expected of, of everyone. You know, there's a famous story. Someone went to the Ger Rebbe a number of years ago. It's a few Ger Rebbe's ago already. And, um, and, and wanted to introduce themselves and, and, and said that they were learning at Eshet uh, Torah, but, which is known as a place for Balei Tshuva, meaning people who weren't religious and became religious at some point. And he, you know, I guess he's talking to this great tzaddik, the Ger Rebbe, and he, he wanted to explain to the Ger Rebbe that he had actually grown up religious, but for whatever reason, he's learning at this yeshiva, which is really geared more toward those who weren't religious initially and became religious. Just to kind of clarify his life story for the, for the Ger Rebbe. So he said to the Ger Rebbe, I, I, I learn at, at, at Isha Torah, but I'm not about tshuva. And the Ger Rebbe looked at him and said, why not? What do you mean you're not a Baal Tshuva? Isn't, isn't that the point? Aren't we all supposed to be Baal Tshuva? Aren't we all supposed to be constantly returning, whether we grew up in the tradition or not? In other words, isn't that the normal order of life, to be working on ourselves and elevating ourselves no matter where we're holding in terms of the spectrum? Because if God is infinite, and if the soul is a piece of God and the soul is infinite, therefore, by nature, there is no, the, the, the capacity to refine oneself is infinite, just by definition. And so, so, so how can we not take advantage of that? But again, what I'm trying to say is, is that that's normal. Ever fixing, ever increasing, ever rectifying, that's normal, as opposed to, no, I got it right, I just can't mess it up. That, that actually is a mistaken view. And, and if one has that, they have a fundamental disconnect with, 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 with the world and with their own lives. So, so now, again, let's go back to this gematria that Rosh Hashanah, remember we're in Elul, and Elul is really preparing for Rosh Hashanah. Elul is this month of good mazel, this month of 
this, this ability to break through the orders of this world, Mazel 77, like super this-worldness, break through it and, and, and tap into this higher level of return, which is higher than tefillah, higher than prayer, higher than tzedakah, higher than charity. By the way, both of those things are great tools for improving one's circumstances, but tshuva tops them all, okay? Tshuva is, is really the, the, the number one. So now, with this in mind, I want to tell you something. At the end of uh, the Shemona Esrei, the, 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 the silent Amida, the silent prayer, which is the centerpiece of our, of our prayer service, of our davening, we say, um, uh, Hashem Elokeinu Avoseinu, Okay, and it goes on further, but it, that means, may it be your will, Hashem, our God and God of our forefathers, that the holy temple be rebuilt. Okay? So, I once thought about this, that, you know, you, you take three steps um, forward, right? Actually, you take... It depends on which part you're joining in. But initially, you take three steps backwards, and then you take three steps forward. So, and then at the end of the prayer, you take three steps backwards again. Okay? So, so what's this idea that you're taking three steps backwards, and then you're taking three steps forward? That's what I want to concentrate on, because the net result of the entering into the prayer is really the three steps forward. Because from your initial spot, wherever you were standing, you know... You're, the point is that you're going up. So we know Kabbalistically speaking, there are what we call the, the four worlds. And again, just, just to make certain that we're communicating, we're not talking about four separate universes. We're talking about one universe that has different degrees of spirituality, the top being the most spiritual, coming down to the most material, one, one spectrum, tzimtzum, just condensing that spirituality into, into this material world. So the three steps that you're going forward, remember, you, you exist in the fourth of the worlds. Olamasiya, this is called the world of action, this dimension. But then when you go into Shemona Esra, you take three steps forward, meaning to say that you're climbing the heights of the ladder of spirituality and closeness to God, and you're supposed to daven Shemona Esra like you're standing before the king, and you're talking personally before the king. And so this is something that you can have in mind, that you're actually, as you take those three steps forward, that you're scaling the worlds. And you're talking to God in his highest place, right? I mean, God is beyond that. He's dimensions beyond that even, but just in terms of the construct of this universe anyway. Okay. So, so then, at the end of your prayer, you take three steps backwards. And that, you know, you, go, you come back to earth, if you will. And so with that in mind... I think it's interesting that the very first thing that you say when you take your three steps backwards is praying for the base of Mikdash, for the Holy Temple to be rebuilt. Meaning to say, you've just been in the world of Atsilus, which is like the world of perfection, and now you come back and you go, what? There's no base of Mikdash? <laughs> How can that be? Okay, first things first. First we need a base of Mikdash. Then I can get on with my life. But it's like, it's like the very first thing that you say. So... So you're addressing the brokenness of this realm. That's the first, first, first thing, first words. But I want to go further into it. You see, it's interesting. It says, "Sheyibane beis hamigdash." Sheyibane means to rebuild, right? To build. Now, what did we say? We said beis hamigdash is the gematria of 
Rosh Hashanah. Right? So, so we're, so, Sheyibane Beis Amigdash means also that we're building Rosh Hashanah. So this is an extra kavana, an extra holy thought to have in Elul, because Elul is the building of Rosh Hashanah, because it's the finishing up of our package that we're presenting to God on Rosh Hashanah. So Sheyibane Beis Amigdash is also Sheyibane Rosh Hashanah. Right? Please, God, rebuild this Rosh Hashanah with all of the pieces, with all the fruits, with all the tshuva that I'm doing right now in Elul. Please, God, build this beautiful Rosh Hashanah. Now, with this in mind, Rabbi Kellimer here in Los Angeles, his, his grandfather said the following teaching, which is kind of brings all this together on, on the month of Elul. And this idea that Elul is coming to be really the building blocks of Rosh Hashanah, like we were just saying. Okay, Now, Two times a year, once we pray for uh, rain, and once we have a special prayer for dew, okay? And rain and dew are amazing concepts in themselves, but uh, that's for another time. But after we make this prayer, both times we say the following thing. I'm going to, I guess I can read it in Hebrew and English. It says, we say, Levracha velo leklala which is translated for a blessing and not for a curse, right? Meaning the rain and the dew, because both can come down in a great way, that's very life-giving, and both can come down in a way that's not so good. So we say it should be for a blessing and not for a curse. Then we say, and then everyone says, Amen. Then we say, L'chaim v'lo l'mavis. And everyone says, Amen, for life and not for death. And then we say, L'sova v'lo l'razon. For plenty and not for scarcity. And everyone says, Amen. Okay, so we're, we really seal it that that this should all be really for the good and the best version of these blessings. Okay, great. So now look at this insight, this amazing insight. If you take the first letter of all three of those phrases, right, starting with the word amen at the end, and you go backwards. So again, you're taking, you're going backwards from amen through the line to the beginning, and you're taking the first letter of each of those words, okay? So... So, so the first line would be Aleph, right, for Amen, Lamed, for Laklala, Vav, for Velo, and Lamed, for Levracha. So what word does this spell? Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed spells Elul. <laughs> now, interestingly, all three lines are exactly the same. They all spell Elul. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. So, so here you have this, this idea that Elul, that this time of Elul is coming like, again, Rosh Hashanah, is the same gematria as Rosh Hashanah, and we're praying, Sheyibane Beis HaMikdash, rebuild the Beis HaMikdash, rebuild Rosh Hashanah, right now is the time of the building. And we're saying that all of these things in the month of Elul are coming, that we can come and really, really finish up our case. You know, I'll tell you something. It's known like in movies, TV shows, whatever it is. I imagine speeches too, or lots of things. How you finish is really what the audience is left with. You know, like, you know, the, the phrase, the grand finale doesn't come from nowhere, right? You really want to leave someone with something, right? With the biggest, with the biggest thing at the end. So Elul is the grand finale of our service to God. 
You know, you know, in the in the Sephardic tradition, they're getting up early, super early, like almost dawn, the entire month of Elul. The Ashkenazim do it like the last week, but you, you, that's that's a and, and the prayers are much longer, and you, you have like, and people are being much serious in so many different ways. Um, so this reflection really, really um, resonates the most right now. Okay. Actually, and then in the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's really the that's really the fullness of it. But you know, but since the since the director already said action like Rosh Hashanah, Elul, you want to start now. I mean, the, but really, the the grand finale is really, I guess, Ni'ila uh, Yom Kippur, right? The end of the Yom Kippur service. But but so I don't want to I don't want to. In, in, in terms of stressing the importance of Elul, I don't want to take away the importance of those days, but nonetheless, let's, let's have the broader context right now. Okay. So I want to go now into uh, uh, this kind of new approach, if you will, for me, anyway. It's in the Gomorrah, so it's thousands of years old, at least. Um, so it's not, it's, not new to, it's not new to the world, but it was new to me. So I want to share it with you, which is this um, concept of prayer, a different way of approaching prayer. And, and um, I'll just say that when I, when I first saw this in the Gomorrah, I, I had a little bit of a, just on an, on an emotional level, not an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, it, I, it, it, it wasn't, I would, a thought that I would put in the category of inspiring. <laughs> I was not inspired by it. <laughs> it was like a, a bit of a bummer, uh, frankly. But then when I thought about it some more, I realized it's actually saying something very, very beautiful. Um, but it just took me a while to get it. So now that I feel so I've got a, a better understanding of maybe what the Gomorrah is saying, I, I'll just... Uh, put it out there, okay? And it comes from a very interesting Pasuk, where they bring this Pasuk, this verse from the Torah that we just read, and it says, it's, it's one of the mitzvahs, it says, if you, um, and if you want to see this, this is uh, in uh, Parshas Ki Tzetze, uh chapter 22, verse 8, and in the Art Scroll Chumash, that's uh, on uh, page 1050, 1050. So it says, if you build a new house, you should make a fence for your roof so that you will not place blood in your house if a fallen one falls from it. So again, that's, that's you know, in the Jewish tradition, something um, eminently practical, which is you have a flat roof and people are going to go up there. You don't want people to fall off your roof. You don't want to fall off your roof and you certainly don't want a guest or a visitor to fall off your roof, right? I mean, that's, that's bad news. So what do you do? So the Torah is telling you, put a, put, put a fence around the roof. Okay, good. Make, makes a lot of sense. Um, I saw a beautiful Hasidic interpretation on this. I'm pretty sure it was from the Ropshitzer Rebbe. So he was the grandfather of the Jikover Rebbe, the one who brought that gematria, that Rosh Hashanah equals um, Beis HaMikdash. So and and he was a great student of the um, of Reb Elimelech of Lizhensk and a a contemporary of of the Chos of Lublin, the Sea of Lublin. So very very great man. 
So the, the Ropschitzer says that what does it mean that you should put a fence around your, your roof? Very creative, uh, deeper understanding that when one reaches the roof, so to speak, when one increases in their own spirituality and rises to this very high place, put a fence around it. In other words, cover yourself. Don't, 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 don't make it obvious the, the level that you've reached. In other words, you, you, you have to stay hidden. That's, that's, uh, with increased levels of spirituality also become, also one has to become increasingly modest about to what extent they present their increased level of, of attachment. You know, if you want to get a little more intimate about it, if the whole notion of cleaving to God is like Dvekas, which is really, you can imagine it's, it's likened unto a, a man cleaving to his wife. That, that shouldn't be done in public before everyone. So, so the, the, the idea that as one gets to the roof, so to speak, it's appropriate to put a fence around the roof for reasons of modesty. A very interesting take on that on that halacha. Um, so, so Mar Ukva, who was uh, one of the the great people in the Gemara, uh, and a tremendous Baal Tzedakah, he was a great master of charity. He, the the Gemara brings that he would. There was a certain home of a poor person. He gave tons of tzedakah, but this particular story is told, where he would throw coins in front of the house of a particular poor person and um, then would, you know, run away so that the person never knew where that money was coming from. And one time that person who was receiving the coins wanted to know who's giving these coins. And so they came out of the house in a way that surprised Marukva, who was with his wife at the time. So it shows that they were doing it together. And they ran to hide themselves, right? Again, this idea of hiding, right? Ran to hide themselves, but you know where the, the closest place they could hide themselves to get out of the way so that they wouldn't be seen by this person? An oven. They ran into an oven and they closed, they had communal ovens back then, which I guess were pretty large, uh, large enough to fit the two of them, I guess, running in quickly, you know? And it says that he burned the bottoms of his feet, right? So, so but I guess he was okay in the end, but the, to what extent was he afraid that this person might be embarrassed for, right? That he ran into an oven. <laughs> so, you know, maybe now is a good time to tell you uh, this thing that I, I found. I'm very excited about it, you know. So, I, there's a discovery that just was on the internet this this week. I haven't seen anyone connect the dots yet. So I'm going to connect the dots, okay? But um, it's... Uh, you see, you hear a story like that. He ran into an oven. And you say, well, did he really run into an oven? Or is this just the... Um, is this just a piece of agadita, meaning to say... 
the rabbis sometimes in the, in the Gomorrah create fantastical tales, which can't possibly be true, but, there, but it, it wasn't meant to entertain. In other words, every medrash, every teaching that the rabbis make, some of the fantastical things are true. They're all true. Whether they happened or not, they didn't necessarily happen. In other words, they're trying to communicate a truth, and that truth is true. Now, sometimes they'll communicate it in a fantastical story, which may not have happened. But it's true because the point is they're trying to communicate a truth, which is true. And that's just the way they present it. Some of those fantastical stories are actually did happen, though. <laughs> or perhaps all of them happened, depending on how you want to, where you line up. It doesn't matter. To me, it's beside the point that they happened, they didn't happen. It's beside the point because they're all true, because it, the, the teaching there is, is the essence of the thing. But it happens to be that some or all of those things also actually happened. Okay? So this is certainly a less fantastical story than there are. Running into the oven to avoid the thing. I mean, what's, what's so interesting about this is that, um, you know, it, it, it perfectly highlights, or perhaps, I don't even know, maybe it's the source material itself, but the, the, it says that when... Um, Yehuda impregnated Tamar, um, and she was, because she wasn't married at the time and she was supposed to be awaiting a certain husband at the time, it's a, it's a whole long story, but, but it turns out that the master of the house was the one who had impregnated her without realizing it was her, it was really, um, but she knew it was him, and, and, and her intentions were very, very holy and pure, and of course the messianic line actually comes from that union. You can read the story in, in the beginning of the, the Torah. Uh, Yehuda says to her when she's on trial for this possible capital offense, says to her, um, you know, basically he asks, you know, what did you do? And she explains that the one who made me pregnant, that this is his signet and his, you know, I heard from Reb Shlomo that she brought him his talisman to fill it. That that's what he had left for her as his, um, as his guarantee because he was going to get a payment. He was going to get a goat or something like that to pay her for her services. Um, but um, anyway, once she had his two pieces of ID, she disappeared. Okay, now all of a sudden she reappears with his possessions and says, the one who did this, this is the one who this belongs to. And then Yehuda right, who, who is the master of tshuva. Remember, Yosef is the one, the tzaddik, who never makes a mistake. And Yehuda is the one who makes a mistake but repairs anything he did wrong. And if you think, which is the one, who is Mashiach ben David, the great redeemer, who is he going to be descended from? If you ask a hundred people, I'm sure most people would say, from the one who never makes a mistake. But again, with the brilliance of, of Judaism, of Torah and everything like that, no, the ultimate redeemer is the one from Yehuda, the one who falls and gets back up. It's, 
again, these are not little teachings. This is the, the fundamental vision of Torah and the world itself being expressed here. So, so Yehuda says, I did it. He publicly admits before everyone while he's serving as the judge in this case. This is a very big moment. It's a very big moment. He says, I did it, right? Yeah, I'm the one. And, and, but she didn't say, and she would have been, I guess, burnt or something like this, right? So she didn't say, you did it, and here's the proof. She could have said that. I mean, this is really like a messianic moment going on. Here her life is on the line. And she has the evidence to save her life. And she can say, you're accusing me of wrongdoing? You're the one. She could have said that. She didn't say that. She said, the, the father is the person who this belongs to. And so that, from that, the rabbis learn, and here's the reason why I'm telling you this story right now, better to jump into a furnace than to publicly embarrass another person. So look what Marukva did. He ran into an oven, literally, with his wife. They ran into an oven rather than be discovered in a way that they felt may have embarrassed that other person. Um, now I want to tell you about this discovery. So now that you have maybe a, a framework about understanding Midrashim and the fact that they're all true, just a question, this, did the story happen, did it not happen? And it may have happened. So it says in, in the Gomorrah, in, in Baba Basra, it talks about the Shamir worm. So the Shamir worm is a, is a fascinating creature. Um, and um, it feels like the, the stuff of storybooks. Um, what, what, what was the Shamir worm? Um, when, in building the Holy Temple, right? We're talking about, right? Elul is building the base of Migdash, so it's a very appropriate teaching for now. In building the Holy Temple, which is called a house of peace for all people, Jews and non-Jews alike. And remember, we brought sacrifices. Non-Jewish people could bring sacrifices. It was a house for all people. Okay? Um, and because metal, you can make swords and guns and things like that from metal. It's, a, it's, it's considered an implement for war on some level, the, the holy altar, the Mizbeach, you couldn't build with metal because, again, it's a house of peace. That's its essence. So how are they going to cut the stone to make the altar? So they use this shamir worm, and this shamir worm could eat through the rock, eat through this very hard substance. And, so, and then they were able to craft the dimensions of the altar of the Mizbeach. Okay, so now, if I were to say to you, in what category of medrash does that belong in? You would say, well, I don't know. That sounds like a bit like a, like a, a, a not true thing where the essence of it is true, so whatever it is. So this week, and you can look it up, it's in National Geographic, Nature Magazine, picked up from all the science magazines, um, they found a species of worm, actually two species of worm, on the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean that eats through bone. 
okay, eats through this very hard substance. And I was talking about this with someone, and he said, yes, in Baba Basra, where it talks about it, and I didn't know this, it says that when Shlomo HaMelech was looking for this worm, he's told him, it's right in the Gomorrah, you have to look, it's in the ocean. And that's where they got it from, from the ocean. And you want to hear something even more interesting. Rabbi Zions was telling me, he, he provided that piece of information, that halachically speaking, there's certain things in terms of rebuilding the temple that you can't do unless certain other things are in place, like until Mashiach is here, for instance. But one of the things that you can build is the altar. That's one of the things that you can build right now. So anyway, it's, I think, very beautiful that this, this worm has been discovered that I guess, I mean, you know, it seems to me like it could do the job. So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a nice thing, kind of a cool thing. And then you realize when you see that that's true, you know, then you go, well, what else is true? What else actually did happen? You know what I mean? That I've just sort of dismissed because it's so outside my realm of experience. You know, I'll tell you something. This problem actually exists many times in writing screenplays and writing uh, for television, which is sometimes you have a story which is true, but it's so bizarre and, and strange that people go, no one's going to be able to relate to this. And so the weird thing is that sometimes people's expectations have been so conditioned by fiction that people think that the fictional reality is true. So that when you actually show the, the true reality, and you know that's a true story because it happened to you, you can't put it up there because it seems too much a work of fiction. <laughs> so there's like this, this very weird rejiggering of our expectations and our, and our notions of reality have taken place through film and television to, to, for us to understand what's real and what's not real. So, so when you hear stories like this and then all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a second, wow, that's, you know. Like, for instance, the, the idea of resurrection of the dead. For a lot of people, they think, you know, the Jewish religion says there's going to be a mass res resurrection of the dead. That that's sort of the end game of, of sort of like this, this human timeline. And then reality itself will have a different component to it be the same elements but kind of mixed together in a different way and it will become a purely spiritual existence. That that's, that's the destiny of the world. And so now when we see that you can like take fossils and you can clone them, you can take the DNA out of things, you can, and you can you know, recreate things and all the rest. And you know, again, remember what the Gomorrah says in Gomorrah Sanhedrin. It says... Resurrection of the dead, that's like kid stuff for God. Because really, if you think about it, the greater miracle, if you will, is taking nothing and turning it into something. But once you've had this something, just to make it something again, is actually a much lesser act than taking nothing and bringing it into existence initially. So if God can take nothing and turn it into something, he can take something that's just... You know, where the, the watch stopped ticking and just wind it again. You know, the watch is already there. So it's like, 
what's the big deal, really? That's what, that's what the Gemara, that's all my words, but that's the, the concept is the Gemara's, you know. <laughs> so, so, anyway. Um, so now, let's get back to this Pasuk, because I didn't tell you this idea about prayer yet. So, um, so it says, again, and I think uh, you were picking up on it the first time I read it, but I'm going to read it again, and now that I told you, I want to tell you who Mar Ukva was, right? So this is Mar Ukva's teaching. He's the one who ran into the oven. So he's obviously a very great man. Listen to this, the, the, the peculiarness of the, of the phrasing of this mitzvah, okay? And you'll be ahead of the game, okay? If you build a new house, you should make a fence for your roof so that you will not place blood in your house if a fallen one falls from it. So what's this idea of a fallen one falls from it? Right? How did he... Wait, doesn't he... He, he falls from it, then he becomes a fallen one. What's this idea that he was a fallen one before he fell from it? So you ready for this? The Gomorrah says that from the six days of the creation of the world, it was decreed that he should fall from that roof. But don't let it happen in your house. Wow, right? That gives me chills, you know? Now, of course, we have free choice, and of course, we can change our destiny and everything like that. All the above. It's not just there's fate and I can't escape my fate. That's not Jewish. We have free choice. And we can and we can change and we can change our destinies. All the rest. Now, the Gomorrah goes on to teach that a person should always pray not to get sick. And they learn it from this Pasuk, okay? or this is one of the places they learn. A person should always pray not to get sick because once they get sick, they need a merit to get well again. So if you don't get sick to begin with, then it's not incumbent upon you to get that merit to get well again. And with that in mind, I understood a prayer that I wasn't saying that, I guess I should have been saying, and I'll try to start saying it again. It's a prayer for livelihood, actually. And it's in the gray box, which means kind of, it's kind of optional, um, in the art scroll sitter anyway. And in this, this prayer for livelihood, it's, it's really supplicating God for, 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 for livelihood, Right? But it seems like an additional prayer. And it seems like, well, if you got a job and everything like that, this extra prayer isn't really necessary because you already got the job. So whatever. Like if you need that extra merit, okay, maybe then you throw it in. But what, based on this Gomorrah, it seems that one has to pray extra that they shouldn't fall into a place of not working or not having money, because then maybe they need the extra merit to get back to the other place, just like in time of sickness. So now I'll tell you why I didn't like this, and then I'll tell you why I came to like it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seems to me like, it's like, you know, 
So many people have this uh, paranoid relationship with God and this paranoid relationship with spirituality and this notion that God is, you know, just kind of waiting in the wings to zap them as soon as they do something wrong and, and all the rest. And it's a very tortured relationship that, they, that, 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 that most people probably have with God. And it's very unfortunate because if, if there's anything that I try to keep on emphasizing, and it's very much the, the Jewish vision, it, it's that, that it's a love relationship. That's the ideal. You know, they're, again, they're different paradigms, and they're all true. There's master and subject. There's parent and child. There's best friends. And then the highest is called Shir Shirim. Rabbi Kiva himself says in the Gemara that this concept of us and God as lovers is the highest. It's the holy of holies. That's the highest. Right, but all the other true are are, are are also true simultaneously. They're also true. But the question is, what which, which do you want to emphasize in your life? Which do you want to concentrate on? So, if Rabbi Akiva, who Moshe Rabbeinu said to God, "Why didn't you give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva?" If Rabbi, so that's you know that's good enough for me. If Rabbi Akiva is saying that this paradigm of Shir Shirim, Song of Songs, is the holy of holies, then that's certainly enough recommendation that that is the ideal path. Okay, but, you know, again, in this kaleidoscopic vision, one has to incorporate all of them, but that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. So, 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 that to me always seems like the ideal. And the idea of sort of like, God is waiting to zap you, seems to just completely undermine, you know, I've heard a terrible slander, and I've heard this in a a number of quarters. I even heard this from a Jewish person I respect, and I just felt sorry for the person, just because it's just so off, which was the the, the Christians would have you believe that the Old Testament, quote-unquote, as though there's something that came after it, right? It's such an insult, by the way, this phrase, the Old Testament, because it, it, it means to say it's no longer in effect. It's not a as we would say, a par of term, you know, it's not a, you know, just sort of like, hey, that's a desk, you know, what's wrong with the term desk? I mean, you know, who's going to take offense at that? It is a highly insulting term, you know, so, so, uh, and then as just a, on a separate thought, I heard Reb Shlomo say in another time that, you know, call it the Torah, don't, don't use the term Bible, so, you know, so I always, whenever I heard that, it's like, it's true, Bible, and Torah, it's two different worlds when you hear those two different words. So Torah is, is a good term to use, you know. Anyway, um, that aside, that the Old Testament, quote-unquote, is that's the, that's, that was the, the Jewish God of justice, right? But this is the, 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 and then you have the Christian God of love. It's like, give me a break. Give me a break, please, please, please. Just save it, you know. It's like, first of all, there's only one God. Second of all, that God is a God of love, right? Echad, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Echad means one. Echad is gematria ava, which is love, the same numerical equivalent. God's oneness and his love, it's replete through everything, you know? It doesn't mean that the other paradigms don't exist. They also exist simultaneously, but what is the heart of all of the paradigms? That's shira shirim. That's that's that love relationship. Okay, so so please don't fall prey to that type of thinking because it's it's mamish slander. I, I I don't I don't know what other word to use for it. Okay, 
Um, so, so now, revisiting this idea, you could approach it like, I'm well right now, I've got to continue to pray that I should be well because if, uh, if, if sickness comes... Uh, who knows if I'm going to get that, that, that merit to overcome it. So every day I'm praying that I'm well, and now I'm not enjoying my health. And, uh, or, okay, and then here's what I realized I think it's really saying. Or, it's like, you see, let me tell you something about the human condition, as far as I understand. One of the hardest things in the world and I really mean it. I don't think that the level of difficulty of appreciating this is sufficiently communicated to people, or if people don't sufficiently understand how difficult this is, is to appreciate what you have and what you've always had. It's, it's almost impossible, actually, to appreciate what you have and what you've always had, because you don't know anything else. You know? It, it, it's... It, it's it's actually like it's it's actually almost impossible. You can try though. You can try though. You can do different exercises and different awarenesses. A lot of the mitzvot are are there to bring you to a level of consciousness and presence that you appreciate what you have. A lot of our service is, is exactly for that. And I think that this is another element of, of it. To say to pray that you should that you should appreciate your health because if a person doesn't have it, then they need a merit to get it back, I think is coming to show us this thing which I have right now is a very great thing. It's a very great thing. And if I were to lose it, God forbid, I'm gonna really have to get something great to get it back. Who knows if I'll have that? merit. And, and I have that great thing right now. Wow, I'm so happy to be healthy. I got a job? Fantastic. I'm so happy to have this job. So in other words, I think that on a deeper level, it's coming to allow us to appreciate all the gifts that we have right now. And sometimes you only appreciate something once you lose it, and so what this is coming to tell you is, imagine what it would be to lose it. Now remember how great it is that you have it. And now thank God that you have it and that you want to keep it. Because you recognize it for the gift right now that you have. You know, I, I, I shared it with you many times, but when I first started going to Daily Minion, um, I was going to this little place. And I, I, you know, every time we read the Torah, you know, I, they would call me up. I'm a Levi. I would get the Levi Aliyah. I was so happy. And then all of a sudden I realized I'm the only Levi there, right? And the day that I realized, oh, it's no big deal. I'm the only Levi there. All of a sudden there was another Levi there and he got the Aliyah. And I thought to myself, that's a big teaching, which is that just because you get something every single time or every day, it doesn't make it any less of a gift, and again, this is an exercise, this, this, this Gomorrah about approaching prayer that, God, I, I don't want to lose it, please let me have it, because I don't know that I'll have the merit necessarily to get it back, makes us appreciate what we have right now. Um, 
we'll just wrap it up. Uh, every month also has a letter attached to it. And Rabbi Reisman, in the Wisdom in the Hebrew Months, the book I mentioned before from Art Scroll, mentions that the, uh, the letter uh, is, uh, is the letter Yud. That we know. That is, you know, our tradition. But what, what he says is something very interesting, which is that the letter Yud, grammatically speaking, if you put Yud in front of a word, it turns it into the future. It's the future tense. So again, the whole perspective of Elul is kind of is kind of the future tense. And actually that's and that has an optimism to it also. You know, if you think about it, the mazel, the zodiac sign for um uh Elul is the Basula, is the virgin. And when you think of a, a woman in the context of being a virgin, it's in contrast to her being impregnated. In other words, you could just say a girl, but that that doesn't zero in on the idea of procreation. If you say a virgin, that's zeroing in on the idea of procreation. So, so the idea is that Elul, on some level, we're already thinking about what's going to be born this year. What the coming year is, is going to bring. In other words, and we have to focus on it now in the month of Elul, because this is when the conception process for the coming year really begins, where we really begin again, Rosh Hashanah and Beis Hamikdash, Sheyibanei Beis Hamikdash, where we're really beginning to build the new year, is 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 right now. So, Hashem should bless us that we should look forward to the the future, right? That that letter Yud, which is future tense, and we really should have all the beautiful things in mind, and. Um, also to appreciate all the amazing things that we have and we should just all be blessed with the best, best, best coming year. Yeah. Okay, so, so the question was, uh, why is Mazel part of the natural order? Because one tends to translate Mazel as the popular translation of it, which is not a scholarly translation is that uh, mazel means luck. And you say good luck, and luck seems to defy the natural order. Luck is, you know, something that is beyond. So I'm saying that mazel represents, and it does, by the way, the natural order, and that we are beyond mazel. That's why it says that we are beyond mazel, because if it meant luck, that means that we're hopeless. (laughs) If we're beyond luck, that means that we don't have any luck, right? So, So it doesn't mean luck. It, 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 means, it means the natural order. The, 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 the mazolos are, are the constellations. That's the natural order. That's the structure of the heavens. And then we're above mazol. We're beyond mazol. So, so why does mazol represent the natural order? What does that mean? And it actually leads us to a deeper understanding of what mazol is, um, which is the... Which I'm, I'm not sure who said this. It may have been Rav Dessler. I'm not sure. But um, the, the idea is that one's... You see, everyone has something to fix in their soul. We, we, we discussed that earlier. This idea that um, we're created, you know, like the Garden of Eden having the snake in it. Each one of us having 
these aspects to ourselves that we have to elevate. So we're all born with something that we need to fix. Okay, so now what's the next step to that? Okay, since if, if, if we're coming into this world having to perfect our souls, perfect the world, right? What, 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 what Hashem then does is He creates the circumstances of our lives and these key elements which are part of mazel, which is one's mazel, meaning one's mazel is rich or poor, smart or dumb, right? Whether you live north or south of the equator, believe it or not, that's, that's considered one of the things. You know, whether you live in a cold place or a hot place, you know, a lot of very cold places in the world, a lot of very hot places in the world. You know, that's going to kind of change your life and your society. Um, things like this, things like this, lifespan, things like this are designed to maximize your ability to fix whatever you need to fix, right? Imagine if, um, you know, you're, you're destined to be the greatest chess player and you're born in, you know, a family of aborigines that's never heard of chess and chess will never enter into that. You can live till 80 and the word chess or a chessboard will never show up. Is that right? Is that fair? Right? So, in other words, it's not. So, so in other words, what God does is he takes the aspect that we need to fix about ourselves and to perfect in our life. And he creates the circumstances of our life in such a way that it's ideal for us to fix whatever it is we need to fix. So that's, that, that's a deeper level of one's mazel. So now... To revisit the question, why does Mazel stand for this world? Because those are your this world circumstances, right? Those are your this world circumstances, which are there to help you fix, or tailor-made, tailor-made for each individual soul to fix whatever it is that they need to refine and elevate during this life. Doesn't at all. Yeah. It's 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 a conversationally it's used that way, but that's not the that's not the academic or Torah definition of it. And in fact, you know, it hit me. I, I just was at a, a family uh, simcha in uh, in New York, um, and during the dancing, it hit me, Mazel Tov. Why why are we saying Mazel Tov? You know. Here, maybe I'll just, as long as I'm saying it anyway, the tape recorder's right here. Uh, so, I, I was at this family wedding, and, and I was reflecting on this idea of what, what Mazel Tov means. Why, why we say Mazel Tov? Because, again, it doesn't mean luck. So, the idea of saying uh, good, good luck to someone like, I think it's actually a little bit, would be a little bit rude and disrespectful. You're getting married? Good luck. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it really <laughs> implies that you don't have on your own the toolkit to, to make this a success, that you're going to be dependent on a measure of luck or, or, or of the roll of the dice, whether it's going to work or not. 
Whereas, you know, if you really are sensitive to the other person's needs and they are also being sensitive to your needs and simultaneously you're looking out for each other, that should be a formula for success, right? That, that should work. It's, it's, historically, that's worked, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, we have every reason to believe that should continue to work, that that's a very good formula, you know? Of course, there are, you know, all sorts of bizarre things that happen in life that that we can't anticipate, but that's, that's another subject. But it wouldn't seem like the normal greeting would be good luck, right? So again, so why are we saying mazel tov to, to, uh, to, to a couple? And, and I think, or for all occasions. So now this is getting more, I think, this is my own kind of understanding that just hit me. You can take it or leave it. But um, this idea that... Uh, you see, another aspect of mazel, I've heard this from a few rabbis, uh, including Rabbi Tatz, that, that the idea is that, you see, there's sort of like, there's this heavenly flow. By the way, mazel also means flow. And I was told that in contemporary Hebrew that a runny nose is, is connected with this idea of, it uses the word mazel, some form of the word mazel, because it means, it means a flow. But, but, but in the spiritual context, it's talking about a divine flow, which is always coming down. Now, as you know that the, the stars and the planets and all the rest are shifting all the time. So, so where are the various positions of the planets which are, have their own personalities and stand for different things? In what position are they in at the moment that the divine flow is coming down? And that that will be a description of the nature of the personality of the divine flow coming down at that moment. Do you understand? So that's why people who are really like master astrologers and things like that can tell you, well, Saturn stands for this and Jupiter stands for that and Pluto stands for that and this is ascendant and that's in that house and all the rest. What they're doing is they're describing the personality of the flow coming down at that moment, right? Like if I were to say to you, well, what's he like? Well, he's six foot two and he, you know, jogs every day and he goes to business school. Okay, so you're getting, a, you're getting an idea for what that person is like. So if I tell you, in, in, if you, if you know astrology, and I tell you Saturn is ascendant, and Mars is over here. That's like saying, okay, he grew up in Boston and you know, <laughs> his parents are Italian. Like you're, you're beginning to get a, an idea for the personality. Okay? So, so since we have free choice, remember, one of the crucial things, I told you that one's mazel is smart or not so smart, rich or not so rich, right? Lifespan, things like that. These are all mazel type things. But righteousness and not righteousness, that's up to every single person. It is, nowhere is it decreed that someone should be righteous, and nowhere is it decreed that someone should not be righteous. Okay? But again, everyone has their own things, that they, their own negative inclinations, which they have to fix and work on. But that doesn't mean, because I have a strong desire for something, and we all have you know, each of us has different combinations of strong desires for different things. That doesn't mean that I was born, God forbid, with a mazel to be not righteous. No. 
Now the ball's back in my court, and I can do whatever I want with it. Okay, that's very, very, very critical, those ideas, you know, in terms of accepting personal responsibility and also accepting the fact that certain flaws or temptations or whatever it is are built into us from the outset and that that's normal. That's normal. That is the way it's supposed to be. And then we're supposed to ideally refine them and and work within them. That's, that's, That's the normal order of what it means to be a human being as we understand it in this world. Um, okay, so again, so just to finish the thought, so why are we saying Mazel tov? Because if everything is, if you're describing all the different times, and some might be more like, oh yeah, he's, oh my goodness, he's got, makes a seven-figure salary, and he drives this type of thing and everything, you say, oh, that's a good, that's a good Mazel, right? But the guy could be a total thief, <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, you know, and he's, you know, just wait, just, just wait. Oh, it's not today's headline. It's not tomorrow's headline. Here's the headline. He's going to jail. You know what I mean? So that's, that, that, that was up to him. He may have had great mazel to attract all this wealth and everything like that, but he chose not to be righteous. So that's what it is. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that any time, even the most propitious, like, like, wow, that's, ooh, that's great mazel, ooh. Even that is up to the person, and they can misuse it. And even the opposite, right, where it seems like, wow, that's really negative, but the person ends up doing amazing things. I mean, how many stories do you hear about, wow, this person had the most adverse circumstances, and they did amazing things. Right? So it just goes to show you that one's mazel is not the ultimate determining factor. It's what one does with it. Right? So now I think that that's what mazel tov means. That you say mazel tov, that you should take your mazel and do tov, do good with it. It's a blessing that you should capture the essence of this divine flow coming down right now and to maximize it for the good. That's what it is.